going to try to emphasize today one of the most, what I think is one of the most overlooked aspects of the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, I want to minister today on the ascended Christ. And what I think is pretty incredible is that most of us in this room have probably been in church all of our lives, most of our lives, and I'm going to bet, and I'd be pretty safe, I think, in this bet, no matter how much money I put on it, that if I went around the room and said, how many sermons have you heard on the ascended Christ, we couldn't get a half a dozen amongst us in this room. I'm not sure we could get two or three. Because for some weird reason, the ascended Christ is one of the least preached aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I say the gospel of Jesus Christ, I mean, the Apostles' Creed tells us we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and His Son, in His only Son, Christ Jesus our Lord, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, descended to the dead, rose again the third day, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's part of the creed. In other words, it's like part of the Christian identity is that the Jesus that came from heaven lived His life, died like a man dies, because all men die. We go down into the death. Descends past death. That's, that's part of our Christian heritage. Descends past death to do whatever he does in the harrowing of hell, to be resurrected on the other side as a new man. And we just like, we preach the gospel, we kind of stop there. Like Jesus is alive. He's resurrected. But the gospel goes on. Jesus doesn't just walk around on planet earth as a resurrected man. He ascends, and I think we've kind of left it out because we don't really know what to do with it. Like, what's the ascended Christ mean? Where, he, he ascends, and that just means, I guess, someday we're going to ascend. And, and so I want to focus on it today for this cause, first of all, because 50 days after Passover was the Jewish feast called Pentecost, which is coming up. 40 days after Easter, Jesus ascended into heaven and told the disciples to go wait in Jerusalem and they waited exactly 10 days. So 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus goes up into the heavens. 10 days after that is Pentecost. Now we Pentecostals, we love this Pentecost moment where the Holy Ghost descends and comes into the church with fire and provides power. Great. And we love the resurrection, the death and the resurrection where Jesus is alive. But I want to focus for one sermon this morning and again, perhaps for the first time you've ever heard it, but I think you're going to see how vital it might be on the ascended Christ. And I want to read from Luke chapter 24, verse 44. And he said unto them, and we're going to read through 53. This is actually all the way through the end of the chapter. Okay, so this is the close of the gospel of Luke. And the he, of course, is Jesus. He said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Everything, I'm pausing here for effect. I want, to, I want to make sure we know what Jesus says. I don't want to miss this. This is actually a pretty vital moment. Jesus says, all things written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me have been fulfilled. Let me say that again. Everything in the Old Testament he didn't use the phrase Old Testament. They didn't have the phrase Old Testament. We have the phrase Old Testament. We're Christians. We're not Jews. If we were Jews, we'd call it the Hebrew Bible. We might even break it down and call it Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. But we're Christians, so we call it the Old Testament. 
So we're going to say it from a Christian perspective. Jesus goes, everything in the Old Testament concerning me has already been fulfilled. I'll say it a fourth time. And I say it a fourth time because I'm amazed at how much we think is unfulfilled, waiting to be fulfilled. And Jesus on his way out, maybe this is why we don't preach the ascension, because if you preach the ascension, you got to take what Jesus says on his way up pretty serious. It's the last words. Like, we take the last words as a big deal. If you go, my grandfather died, his last words were, and you go, ooh, I want to know what his last words were. Why? Because it's the last thing on his mind. The last thing on Jesus' mind as he ascends is, everything you're ever going to read back there about me has already been fulfilled. It's done. It's finished. So some of the stuff you're reading back there, you think is coming up in the future. He said, but I'm telling you it's now. It's fulfilled now. This event is it. What's happening right here is the absolute finish of that event, everything concerning me. And then, and this is crucial, 45, then he opened their understanding they might understand the scriptures. So on his way out, what he leaves with the baby church is the ability to open up the Old Testament and see Jesus. So if we're not opening the Old Testament and seeing Jesus, we're not using the gift Jesus gave us on his way out. Right. I, would, I contend that we've absolutely atrophied our ability to open the Bible and see Jesus because all we do is open the Bible and see us. Right. So we read the Bible all the time to try to figure out how we're supposed to live. We ought to be reading the Bible to figure out how he lived. To figure out how Jesus lives, you can figure out who you're following. You figure out who you're following, you know why you're reading the Bible in the first place. Stop reading the Bible for brownie points, bonus points, check marks with God, or to win Bible contests. Don't read your Bible out of obligation. Don't read your Bible out of boredom. Don't read your Bible because if you don't, you won't be righteous. Read it to find Jesus, and then it will become exciting and alive. And the moments where you don't see Jesus, you can just move on to the moment you do. You don't have to bog yourself down in moments where you can't find Christ. You have this. This is a gift. On his way out, he said, you get to read the Bible and understand and see me. And then he said this to them in 46. Thus it is written, thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The Greek for, uh, for repentance here is, uh, the, the Greek rendering is a little bit closer to heart transformation this is, this, is, this is a little closer to the Greek. Heart transformation and forgiveness of sins should be, and, and this word preached is often just makes us think of a guy up screaming. Right. So, so get out of that because the Greek didn't understand that idea. Preach means get up and scream. The word preach was to proclaim. It was to literally make a proclamation, which tells me that the gospel is far more proclamation than invitation. Okay. Now, why does that matter? Because what we've done is we've taken the gospel and we've turned it into a message by which you become convicted of what's wrong with you. And then we invite you to receive the Jesus at the end of the gospel. Okay. So whatever anybody gets up and screams, preaches, we can call that the gospel as long as at the end there's an invitation to come and meet Jesus. This allows you to get up and spew anything you want. But in the end, as long as you invite people to Jesus, that's the gospel. However, the gospel is not an invitation. The gospel is a proclamation. Proclamations and invitations are two different things. If I invite you, you've got to say yes to come. If I proclaim to you, it's all on my end to proclaim. You can hear the proclamation and use it or you don't have to, but it doesn't change the proclamation. 
So the proclamation is heart transformation, sins are forgiven. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is saying this. Here's what you go out and preach, gentlemen. Heart change is possible through the forgiveness of sins. If you knew your sins were forgiven, your heart could change. I proclaim this as gospel. What's gospel mean? Good news. All right. Good news. Change is possible by receiving forgiveness of sins. Do you agree with that? That's the gospel. Change is possible by receiving forgiveness of sins. Heart transformation is possible by receiving forgiveness of sins. Change isn't possible by doing. Change is possible by receiving. Proclamation, not invitation. Now, we have invitations where we invite people, but a lot of times we're inviting people to come say a prayer or to come to an altar. And there's nothing wrong with saying prayers and coming to altars, but I'm afraid that sometimes we've taken Jesus' mandate to proclaim the gospel and we've turned it into an invitation for people to accept the end of a sermon as gospel, but the gospel doesn't change whether you receive the invitation or not. The proclamation is heart change is possible by receiving forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins isn't, you don't forgive your sins, he forgives your sins, and then the heart transformation begins. So, man, on his way out, Jesus is laying it down. Because on his way out, he goes, everything you're ever going to read back there about me has been fulfilled. Don't look for it to happen tomorrow. It's already happened. Um, I'm going to give you the ability to understand that. Oh, and by the way, once you understand that, go out and proclaim the following. Hearts can transform by forgiveness of sins. Great news. This is the good news. This is what you get to go out and proclaim. Repentance, remission of sins should be preached in my name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you've been due with power from on high. And of course, that's the Pentecostal prophetic moment where Jesus says it's coming. We know it's 10 days later. And they had to have an idea as good Jews. The next Jewish holiday was Pentecost. And they had to have an idea that, the, that things happened on that calendar. And so they know we're not going to have to wait long. But they go and they wait for 10 days and they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to make one brief comment. I don't want to get lost in this. But I do think it's necessary to say, I think we Pentecostal charismatics have focused so much on the fire falling at Pentecost to give us power that we forgot that the fire is always, always in the scriptures to take out of us what doesn't belong and to illuminate in us who we really are. So if you're a Moses and you approach the burning bush, the bush will burn and show you your destiny. If you're a captor, a warrior, a warlord, and you approach the fire of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's furnace, it will kill you as you throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. You notice that in the Bible? The fire just exposes what you are. If you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you go into the fire and you just chill and it burns off your handcuffs. If you're the captor throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, you're dead. (laughs) The fire just shows what you are. It just shows who you are. Pentecost is not meant to give you the power to shout or speak in tongues. It's meant to illuminate your heart with the love of God that burns out of you what doesn't belong and illuminates who you are in him. That's why we got to preach Pentecost, because what it does is it allows us to become the real us in the presence of God. To get to that place, 
Jesus has to ascend. So he leads them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And it came to pass that while he blessed them, he was parted from them and he was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. And that's the end of the gospel of Luke. And what has happened in this story is that Jesus has ascended. I want to I emphasize the ascension not as an act. Like, what did it look like when Jesus goes up in the air and disappears? Um, we have conflicting stories in the way the Gospels tell it and the way Acts tells it. Not conflicting as in they disagreed, but we get different angles. Like, there's different cameras on the mountain that we get to see this happen. So I'm not too interested in trying to land on the physicality of the ascension. But I want to land on the, on the reason for the ascension. And I think that when we miss the ascension of Christ, we miss the fact that the ascended Christ doesn't just go float around in the heavens waiting to descend as the Holy Spirit on the church, but that the ascended Christ goes into the heavens to be seated at the right hand of his father because that's the place that the king rests and resides. And our lack of emphasizing the ascended Jesus means we are not emphasizing the enthroned Jesus. And because we're not emphasizing the enthroned Jesus, a king, it's hard for us to emphasize a kingdom. How many of you know if you've got a king, he better have a kingdom, otherwise he's not king of much. How many of you also know if you have a kingdom without a king, you just have a dumb. You don't have a kingdom, you just have a dumb. I don't know what that means. It just means there ain't no king there. Here's what it means. You have a dominion without a king in it. And where there's no king in a dominion, there's going to be chaos. All right. So when Jesus ascends into the heavens and then seats at the right hand of the Father, he's enthroned as king over a kingdom. But the kingdom is not a far off place called the glory land. The kingdom was the place where the disciples were still standing on the earth and Christ had brought a kingdom with him from the heavens and was now enthroned over that kingdom, even though that kingdom's invisible. And the kingdom, according to the Old Testament, which is fulfilled in Christ, is a kingdom that has no end. So if Christ brought the kingdom, the kingdom has no end, then the kingdom is something relevant to the disciples and relevant to us. If we don't preach the ascended Christ, we can't preach the enthroned Christ. And if we don't preach the enthroned Christ, we're going to put somebody on that throne. And here's the danger. Because if Christ isn't on that throne, politicians are on that throne, national rulers are on that throne, you're on that throne somebody's going to run the roost of your life. They're going to run the rule of your house. They're going to run the rule of your nation. They're going to run the rule of your school. They're going to run the rule of your mind. We're enthroning people all the time. A lot of times we're enthroning us or we're enthroning our pastor. We're enthroning. We're even enthroning the Bible. I drove past a church sign the other day that said the Bible, only the Bible and nothing but the Bible. And I thought, how about Jesus, right. <laughs> only Jesus, and nothing but Jesus? I think you guys got the wrong dude on the throne. Right. You got a leather-bound book on the throne. We got a crucified, dead, and ascended Christ on the throne. Yeah. Pick wisely. Right. But it's in our nature to want someone to sit on that throne. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., and you go into the United States Capitol, in the rotunda of the Capitol, that's the big dome that you see on television at the top of the U.S. Capitol. If you've never been in there, let me tell you what's inside. 
And if you ever get the chance to go, go. Because what's inside is you step into that sort of lobby, the rotunda, what they call the rotunda area of the Capitol, and you look up. And 180 feet in the air is the, the ceiling of the rotunda, of an, a circle, and painted on that ceiling are characters. Now, from the floor, they don't look very large. Up close, they're 15 feet tall, going around that, the edge of that. And that rotunda ceiling is titled the apotheosis of george washington apotheosis is an old greek word that means when anyone ascends to godlike status so the apotheosis is whenever you become enthroned as a god or a ruler and inside of our capital, you look up 180 feet, the apotheosis of George Washington is what it sounds like. George Washington ascended on a cloud, surrounded by 13 maidens, each of them named one of the 13 original colonies. Curiously, when you look at this, some of the maidens have their backs turned to George Washington. Some of them are facing George Washington. That's because the Capitol Rotunda was commissioned to be painted in 1863. If you know your U.S. history, what's happening in 1863 is the American Civil War. In fact, we're in the bloodiest moments of the American Civil War. And it was commissioned by Congress as a piece of nationalistic, almost spiritualistic propaganda. And to do it right, they hired a guy named Constantino Brumidi. Constantino Brumidi had spent about three years painting religious frescoes inside the Vatican in Rome. So they sail him across the ocean to Washington, D.C., and they pay him the sum of nearly a million dollars in today's terms to paint the ascension, the apotheosis, the godlike enthronement of George Washington. And the 13 maidens are the 13 colonies around Washington. The ones with their backs to him were the states that had rebelled in the American Civil War and had turned their backs on their, on their god. Surrounding George Washington is a rainbow that goes around the enthronement of Washington. Now, you might say, well, that's just an interesting piece of art, but I think it's the longing of the human soul. In its bloody years of rebellion, the American body politic turns to someone as their enthronement, and so they turn to their own past. And they turn to the founding president, the, the original founding father. They take George Washington, but they paint him in an image in which he's ascended to the throne. And any rebellion is then a rebellion against the ascended George Washington. What is fascinating to me is that what Constantino Brumidi did was actually borrow Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. Now, I don't think he did it on accident. I think he did it very much on purpose. Because when you get into Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, the angel says to John, come up here, I'm going to show you the things that must happen hereafter. And when John steps in, he steps into the cosmic heavenly throne room. And it never says who's on the throne, but there's someone on the throne. And sitting on the throne, surrounded by 24 elders, is this image. And at his feet, surrounding his throne, is a rainbow. All the colors of the spectrum surrounding the heavens. And then, in a moment of almost comedic interlude, we find that John, there's a set of scrolls that cannot be unrolled so that 
Whatever God has intended for the earth is to come to pass on the earth. And John cries because no one can open the scrolls. And the heavens say, don't cry. There is one who can open the scrolls. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that, by the way, is the only time in the Bible we get the phrase lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Big old roaring lion. And in that comedic interlude, John turns around to see what the lion looks like. And it's not a lion at all. But there stands a slain lamb bleeding on the floor. And everything in the throne room of heaven falls on its face, John included. And what he hears is, behold, there is one who is worthy to take the scrolls and to open it. And it is the lamb who is worthy. And there's no more mention of lions. And what we are to take in the Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5 story is that the lion that wins, the roaring lion that wins is actually winning from the place of slaughter. Jesus, the slain lamb, is the roaring lion. We kind of erroneously in Christian thought say Jesus is the lion and the lamb. The reality is the lion is is a lamb because Jesus from his place of victory only wins from his place of slaughter so what you see in Christ in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 the bleeding lamb the bleeding lamb wins in the way that a lion wins but he doesn't win with lion-like tactics he doesn't borrow the machinery of the world he has the machinery of his father and everything in heaven in Revelation 5 bows down on the floor. And what you realize at the end of Revelation 5 is the one on the throne is the bleeding lamb. Yeah. Here's why we need to preach the ascension. Because if we don't preach the ascended and enthroned Christ, we run the risk of thinking that moments like Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 are in our future. Right. Someday, Jesus is going to roar like a lion and he's going to win and God's going to set him on the throne and he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to show all these people who's boss. But the reality is, is that Jesus has ascended to the Father and is already seated at the right hand of the Father as the slain lamb. He is the opener of every seal across time. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. We don't have to wait for him to be enthroned. We just have to let him be enthroned in our heart. We got to take George Washington off of his throne and we got to put Jesus on his throne. Now, I'm not faulting the Congress for putting an apotheosis of George Washington. Why wouldn't they? They're not a religious institution, but they borrowed religious imagery. They actually borrowed Jesus imagery to put a man on the throne. And, and I don't expect anything less. They're not a church. Right. <laughs> don't expect the government to look like the people of God. but expect the people of God yes. to look like Jesus. Amen. And so the people of God reject the enthronement of political leaders. We reject the enthronement of religious leaders. Right. We reject, I didn't say we reject leadership. We reject the enthronement. Yes. They are not ascended beyond the earth and into the heavens. Jesus has ascended beyond the earth and into the heavens. And in a beautiful fashion, Jesus ascends as a man. 
so that he can remain a man in the heavens. So that what you have in the heavens is a resurrected man standing in front of God. Because if that's the case, and Jesus as resurrected man is the enthroned king, then the ultimate destination for humanity is resurrection. And guys, if the ultimate destination for humanity is resurrection, everything's going to be all right. Because at the end of the day, no matter what happens, there's resurrection to anticipate. You want to talk about tabernacle of hope? What's the hope? What's the hope of the redeemed? That this isn't the end. That no matter what ends down here, we have an ascended Christ. He's alive forevermore. He's enthroned by His Father. And if He's alive forevermore and enthroned by His Father, I'm okay because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. And if that be the case, no matter how bad it gets, I have hope. It's going to be all right. I have an enthroned Christ. The ascended Christ is so necessary because it lifts our head beyond the mortal plane so that we don't get lost in the physicality of this system so that we don't sell ourselves to the powers that be in this system. And instead, we lift our head. That's why the New Testament says, lift your head, your redemption draweth nigh. That doesn't mean look up, the rapture's coming. It means lift up your head because your ascended Christ is sitting above the heavens. Your ascended Christ is above the earth. Your ascended Christ is above your faults, your failures, your struggles, your wilderness. An ascended Christ lifts up the head of the redeemed and it lifts up the head of the world. If Christ is ascended, then we have the hope of ascension. Because whatever Christ is, we are. The mystery of God that was shut up from the universe is that Christ is in us, the hope of glory, right? Here's a great paradox. How can Christ be in you and ascended into the heavens at the same time? How is it possible that Christ is there and that he's here? Well, I don't want to get too metaphysical on you, but I want you to consider the fact that for too long we've considered heaven a place you go instead of a life you experience. Because we have it a place you go, we think that what happened in Luke 24 is that Jesus ascended up into space and that if you had a camera out there in space, you would have seen Jesus fly up off the earth and then fly through the Milky Way galaxy and slowly but surely leave our solar system and our galaxy and go into another one where finally, after he went through enough galaxies, which took who knows how long, maybe he goes at the speed of light, he ends up at this celestial place called heaven and he gets to come right in and the angels open these big doors and he goes through on gold golden streets and he goes and sets up on a chair next to his father and sometimes the devil comes in who makes this long journey across the universe and the devil comes in and says Jamie Groover's down here doing this and Jesus goes hey father don't kill him because I died for him and that's kind of kind of what we have which is this place that people go after they die and they cross over the cosmos and listen I do believe very 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 much that when you are gone from this body you go be in the presence of God How can you not? You cannot be spiritual inside a physical and your spirit man die when your physical man dies. Otherwise, the spirit and the physical are the exact same realm and we know better because we have a resurrected Christ. And if we have a resurrected Christ, we have an ascended Christ and an enthroned Christ, then the question becomes where is ascended and enthroned Christ? Well, he's not in a cosmic place called heaven on the other side of the universe, but he is in the heavens, the place that you can't see. The place where God lives. The place where the psalmist believed, if I make my bed in hell, he makes his bed with me. 
Where can I flee from the presence of the Lord? Nowhere. Wherever I go, He is there. Which tells me that the realm of the spirit and the realm of the physical are not just geographical places, but they are places that are happening at the same time. Which is why Christ can be enthroned in an invisible realm of the spirit, but also alive, very much alive inside of you. That same Jesus. Why then do we need to see him ascended? What does it matter? Because if he's ascended, then he's enthroned. And if he's enthroned, then he's a king. And if he lives inside of you and he's a king, then two things are true at the same time. One, you're not the king. And that changes everything. Because if you're not the king, you better figure out who is. And that's the person you listen to. And that's what we call listening to the spirit. That sound of the king that never stops talking. And he doesn't have to pound away at what's wrong with us because he's what's right with us. And so the king is reinforcing himself over and over and over again. And so if you have a king inside of you, the first thing is you're not the king. And then secondly, if you have a king inside of you, you must be in the kingdom. And you have a singular and foremost allegiance to following your enthroned Jesus. Christ becomes the only thing that matters to your faith. Not my church, nothing but my church. Not brother so-and-so, nothing but brother so-and-so. Not my Bible, nothing but the Bible. But Christ and nothing but Christ. Dead, buried, descended, resurrected, ascended, and seated at the right hand of the Father. That's my Christ. His authority then becomes paramount to every other word. What he says to me matters over what everyone else says to me. Listening to the Spirit matters more than any other thing that I can do. As I listen to Christ, whatever he says to me, that's what I do. This is why the seasons of your life will change, but the voice in your life will not change. So there'll be seasons when you're doing the will of God in a spot and the wind will blow and the Holy Spirit will move you into another spot. And by other spot, sometimes it's geographical, but sometimes it's, it's, it's a movement in your own spirit from what you're doing to what you're supposed to do. And the Holy Spirit doesn't drag us by the hair. The Holy Spirit blows as the wind across the surface of our heart and we listen and we hear the sound thereof and we may not understand everything that's going on, but we follow that. And it only happens because we have an ascended enthroned Christ. He's in us. He's not outside of us. If he's outside of you, then you're going to have Jesus at times standing way over here and you're way over there. And that distance is vital. And then you're going to have Jesus going, come on over here and where you're at isn't working. And that sense of separation is going to kill you. That right there is the death of humanity. And and it always happens right here. Because it's not happening right here. Why? Because we have an ascended Christ. Because Christ ascended, he sits on the throne. Christ in you. Where's the throne? I hope you're picking this up. Where's the throne? In you. Okay, good. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay. If he's ascended into the heavens and enthroned in you in the realm of the spirit, then there's never a distance. And any distance you have is a perception by your 
Mind that is tricking you, fooling you, because maybe it's been listening to the voices of the world, maybe it's been listening to the voices of religion, maybe it's been listening to the voices of condemnation, but every moment of, of separation and isolation is a deception by the enemy of your own mind. Yes. Adam sins in the Garden of Eden. The moment that he partakes the fruit, he can see that he's naked. This is a problem. He was not naked before he ate the fruit. He wasn't supposed to eat the fruit. Now he's naked. He neither understood his nakedness before nor after. God didn't explain it. God just said, don't eat. The moment he ate, something happened. Uh-oh, God's going to notice. So what should I do? I'm going to hide. <laughs> and Adam hides from two people, by the way. Don't ever forget this. This is what isolation, this is what separation does to us. We hide from two people. The first person Adam hides from is Adam because he covers himself in fig leaves so that he can't see and Eve can't see. Because Eve's just an extension of him, yes. by the way. If he's worried about Eve, he's worried about him. Right. That's marriage. That's true marriage. Yeah. Okay? So he hides. He covers himself up. He just builds him a little apron. So now I can't see the thing that for some reason offends me. It didn't offend me before, but this, this, this thing I ate has messed me up. All right, and this is right. This is rightful. Because this thing is, I don't know what's wrong, but we aren't who we used to be. So we're going to cover up what we are. This is the mask we all put on anytime in our life we feel ashamed of who we are. And we put a front out in front that goes, okay, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to be this gal. But in reality, I'm this gal. And that's us putting on our little fig leaf clothes because we're hiding from ourselves as much as we're hiding from the people around us. But that's not the only people we hide from. The second step is that Adam then goes and hides in the bush. Have you ever wondered why he needs to put an apron on and hide in the bush? Because he's not hiding from Eve in the bush. She's probably in there with him. He's hiding from God. Yeah. Here's the amazing thing. How does he know to hide from God? Well, he doesn't. He didn't have a manual that said, if you eat this, you ought to hide from God. But here's the reality. He knew God would show up. Because God is consistent. God never changes. Every day they had a conversation in the garden and they walked it out and they talked it out. And today Adam doesn't want to walk it out and talk it out because he's ashamed of himself. But he knows God's going to show up. And God does show up. Lo and behold, here comes God walking through the garden going, Adam, where are you? And Adam is hiding in the bushes. And Adam says, I'm hiding in the bushes. And God goes, why are you hiding in the bushes? And he goes, because I was naked. And God goes, who told you you were naked? God knows why he's naked, but everything that happens, happens so that we will know who we are and then we can be impacted by who he is. And Adam steps out of the bush and he's covered in aprons, the figs and your clothing doesn't work. Figs are notorious. You ever been to, a, you ever seen an actual fig leaf? Go to a botanical garden sometime and ask to see the fig tree. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And the leaves are enormous. You can see why when he was walking around the garden, he picked the fig tree. Here's the funny thing about fig leaves. When you detach them from the tree, they instantly start to dry up and they get smaller and smaller and smaller. So detached from their life-giving source, what he thought would cover him won't cover him. It's an illustration for whatever you think will cover you up won't cover you up. The real you is going to come out. Like you're, you're going to be exposed for what you are in the presence of God. I didn't say all that so we feel guilty. I said all that so you'll understand this. God shows up. Doesn't matter. You hide from God, God shows up. And he doesn't show up angry, smacking you around, beating you up. Who told you that there was something wrong with you? 
I didn't tell you there was something wrong with you. Who told you there was something wrong with you? It's God's way of saying, stop listening to what other people say about you. And just listen to me. If Christ is ascended and Christ is enthroned and Christ is in you the hope of glory, stop listening to what other people say about you. And listen to Jesus. And listen, if you believe there is a gap, it's in your mind. It's not real. Because where is his enthronement? This is why we need to preach the ascension. Because we don't think God lives in us. We think God lives somewhere over in the glory land and he's mad at us half the time. And you know why? Because we're not preaching the ascended Christ. And because we don't see Jesus sitting on the throne and realize that that throne's not a golden place over in the glory land, but in me, then we have a sense of distance and separation that is being utilized by the enemy. Every time we preach a gospel that separates people from who God is, we preach the sermon of the enemy, the message of the Antichrist. We create a chasm between God's people and God. We do the devil's work. How do you know it's the devil's work? Because it's the Garden of Eden and the snake got it started. And the snake's still preaching the same message. God didn't tell you the whole truth about you. God just wants to keep something from you. You ought to eat that and see. And I mean you ought to eat it and really see. Because you can't even see now. And so we eat it and see. And boy, do we see. And what we see is a lie. It's not how God made us. It's not who we are. And then we do everything in our power to make up for all of those perceived failures. And God's at a distance and we preach Him that way. And shame on us. Christ said everything written about me has been fulfilled. Go make a proclamation, not an invitation. Tell them their heart can change because God has forgiven them of their sins. I'm going to open your minds. You can understand all this. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back in the form of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to rest inside of your heart and we're going to go to work. And when I get there, I'm going to be enthroned as a slain lamb. I do the power of a lion, but I look like a lamb and all of heaven will bow to me. And where is that throne? In us. Let me show you that. That that throne is in us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, unto every one of us is given grace. Look at this. Is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Every one of us has not been given condemnation. Every one of us has not been given shame. Every one of us has been given grace. I truly believe that the church should be the safest place in the world and the most dangerous place in the world at the same time. Let me, can I take two minutes and tell you what I mean? Okay, here, here, here's my theory. The church should be the safest place in the world because the real you gets to show up without fear of condemnation. Like the real you. That people won't hate you, reject you, push you away, mock you, make fun of you, make you feel guilty or condemned. They don't have to approve of your life, your lifestyle, or your choices. But they love you because you are in sanctuary where everyone gets to eat at the king's table. This table isn't the Tabernacle of Hope. This table isn't Jamie Groover's table. This table is the Lord's table. And because it's the Lord's table, I don't get to tell you if you get to eat or not. Because I didn't lay the bread out. It's not my body broken for you. It's not my blood shed for you. It's his body broken for you. His blood shed for you. You can take it up with God if people don't get to eat. And it's dangerous to keep people from the table if the king's flung wide the doors. And if you don't think he's flung wide the doors, you need to reread the parables. 
where when it's time for the wedding feast, you go out of the highways and the hedges and you bring in the worst of society. Okay, that means when the doors of sanctuary open, it's a safe place for the worst of society. I'm not sure we've presented that gospel. We've actually presented a gospel that feels comfortable for the upright, uptight, and highly moral people. We've created a safe space for people who feel super moral. We've created a dangerous space for people that know they're not. Those things ought to be flipped. How do I know? Because we follow the ministry of Jesus. All the straight-laced, buttoned-up, high-moral people were offended by Jesus, and all the dregs of society found themselves sitting at his feet. It tells me that the church needs to reevaluate who feels comfortable and at home. Okay, safe space for you to be yourself. Most dangerous place in the world, though. Because what happens if you follow Jesus is some people in your life might abandon you. You run the risk when you follow Jesus of not being socially approved anymore. You run the risk. It's a dangerous risk if you're attached to this world that when you follow Jesus, you might not fit in the social circle anymore. Not if you really follow Jesus. You might not be a member of the club any longer. There might be some things you don't participate in, you don't do because your Savior stands out in you and in front of you saying, this isn't me, this isn't you, let's take a left. Yeah, but everyone says take a right. He goes, we're going to take a left, and that becomes dangerous. Becomes dangerous to your career, becomes dangerous to your social status, becomes dangerous to your friend circle. That can happen. So coming to sanctuary is the safest thing in the world to do and the most dangerous and risky thing in the world to do. But when you get here, what do you get? Grace. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended, there's the ascended Christ. When he ascended, he led the captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Here's what I love. The one who ascended led captivity captive. Why? Because when he ascended, he descended first into the lower parts of the earth. And when he descended, he ascended up far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So the one who went up first went down. When he went into the ground and he went into the grave, Jesus descended into the realm of the spirit and took with him whatever was there so that he could ascend up into the realm of the heavens. I don't have the explanation for what Paul meant by this, but I find it super intriguing. The one who went up first went down. When he went down, he led captivity captive. Those who were captive, he captivated them, and he took them with him. Why do we need an ascended Christ? Because if we preached an ascended Christ, we'd have to buy prerequisite. Do you ever go to a college course, and they go, you have this, there's a prerequisite for this course? If you're going to take this course, you've got to take the other one? And if you haven't taken the other one, you've got to take it first? If you're going to have an ascended Christ, by default, you're going to have to preach that he descended first. Sometimes I wonder if the reason we leave the ascended Christ alone is because we're scared of what this might mean to our theology if we've got to preach the descended Christ. Because what in the world is he doing descending? What's he doing down there? And the descended Christ leads captivity captive. I like to think he just cleans out your hell. Whatever's in the darkest dungeon of your soul, the one who just took his seat on your throne, he didn't just t- sit on your throne and leave the crap in the basement. He sat on the throne, went and cleaned the basement out before he sat down. Yeah. He went, if I'm going to sit in this house, we're going to go clean some stuff up. I'm going to go drag, cap- whatever's held you captive is going to be captive to my love. And we're going to work on it. I'm going to work on it with my love while I sit there. <laughs> Ephesians 2. Here's us. God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in our sins. He loves you so much that even when you were dead in your sins, he quickens you together with Christ. Look at that. By gra- Paul puts, we put it in parentheses, by grace you're saved. It'd have to be by grace because you're dead. 
You go, there's nothing you can do to make this quickening happen because if you could, you wouldn't need it to be grace. And dead people can't do anything. In your death, Christ comes and finds you and raises us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where's the throne of God? In you. How do I know? Because you're sitting there with Him. And you're not over in some cosmic glory land on the other side of the universe. You're sitting right here on a Sunday morning. So where's Christ? Sitting right here on a Sunday morning. Enthroned at the right hand of His Father. Not just twiddling His thumbs with His feet up. But being king, yes. <laughs> ascended and sitting. Why do we need this? So that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Don't ever let anybody make fun of you for preaching a kind God. Yes. Or you go down there, they just make God look so loving and kind. Praise God. Yeah. <laughs> Praise God. We're just trying to preach that Bible you hold in such high regard that you've put on the throne, Bible, but the Bible, only the Bible. That very Bible says that in the ages to come, he's going to show us the exceeding riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, as the ages roll along, as we go into the second century and the third century and the fourth century and the 21st century, God's going to be rich in his grace by being kind to his people. Everyone who he sets on the throne of their heart, he goes, let me shower you with with my kindness. Let me show you how good I can be to you. You and I together navigating this earth, my kingdom infiltrating your kingdom. Don't give your allegiance to other kings. Put me on the throne and let me be king. Don't you be king. That's a tragedy. Let me be king. I'll hold your hand. We'll walk through all the hell together. We'll clean out the basement. I'll sit on the throne. We'll do this in tandem. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Why do we need to hear about the ascended Christ? Because if you don't ascend Jesus, you're going to ascend something. And the danger in ascending something is whatever goes up sits down on that throne and it doesn't relinquish power very easily. Thank you, Jesus, that you ascended into heaven. Pastor, I think it's a stretch. I'm, I'm going to say this in close. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Pastor, I think it's a stretch to say that the home that Jesus has made is inside of us. Jesus says in John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Go, no, Bible says mansions. No, your English Bible says mansions. And the moment it said mansions, you got yourself a 15-bedroom, seven-bath house in the corner of glory land that you can't wait to get to with a gated community and a cul-de-sac and an in-ground pool. And the truth is that you filtered mansion through the American ideal of wealth. But the word in the Greek is room or abode, a spot where we sit together. In my father's house are a bunch of rooms. And then as the chapter unfolds, he goes, for the man who loves loves my father, my father loves him, and we will make our abode in you. And the King James translators lost their nerve and didn't translate the second one mansion. 
Because if they'd have been true to their own mistranslation, they would have said, any man that loves my father, my father and I'll make our mansion in him. But they knew the minute they did that, you wouldn't be looking for a house in the glory land. You'd be looking for a house in this land, inside your heart where God lives. So yes, I even got Jesus on my side to say, the throne I'm going to sit on is in you. Ascended Christ, sitting at the right hand of his father. Church, we ought to preach it, man. I hate that it only comes around once a year, ascension. Preach it more often. He's ascended and he's seated. Father, thank you this morning for Tabernacle of Hope. I love this place. I love every person in this room, but I don't love them near as much as you do. I don't even know how to love them as much as you do. I can try to give them a revelation of my love and won't last them past the parking lot. Father, if you'll give them a revelation of your love, it'll last them for eternity. I hope that what we've done today, Father, is show the ascended Christ sitting not over there, but sitting in within us, resting in the free space that you've provided. Help us to understand this in the way that allows us to receive the kindness of God in the ages to come. Help us to see that any separation is on our own part. And we thank you in Jesus' name for who you are. And if you receive the ascended Christ in your heart today, say amen. amen. Yeah. Praise God. Isn't God good?